Welcome to Above and Below, a Salt Lake podcast, where we're going to be exploring above and below the surface. We'll take a deep dive into the world of fishing, diving, and surfing. Every week, we're going to sit down with experts to learn more about them and get their freshest, hottest takes on all things salty. Welcome to Above and Below, a Salt Life podcast. I'm your host, Cheyenne Bearson, and today we have Captain Tyler McAllister on with us. Today, we're going to discuss his recent charter with Team Salt Life. Captain Tyler, how's it going? It's going very well, thank you. Can you give us a brief overview of yourself? Let's see. I have been a fisherman since I could walk. I've been fishing commercially for myriad species, but kind of cut my, my favorite species is a bluefin tuna giant bluefin tuna, which I've been fishing for since the age of 17. So it would be my, this was my 39th season fishing for bluefin tuna. Um, I own two boats. I have a 38 custom built Holland Downey style boat, which is outfitted for commercial harpooning for bluefin tuna as well as rod and reel. And I also do um, a bunch of different charters on it from ground fish to tunas to uh, marlins. It's a, it's a very versatile boat. And my second boat is a bottom line, which is a 28 whitewater center console, which affords me speed to chase bluefin tuna, yellowfin tuna, and other species where we have a, um, it's called run and gun or jig and pop where we're chasing feeding fish all over the boat's quick. So it gets there as soon as the fish come up and it's a lot of fun. That's really interesting. What are the seasons for bluefin? What time of year do you usually target them? So the commercial season opens on June 1st and runs under a quota system. There's a June, July, August quota, which is about 355 metric tons. That When that's captured, the quota will close and reopen September 1st for roughly 180 tons. Uh, once that's captured, it closes again, reopens October 1st for a little over 120 tons, close again till December 1st. So... For example, this year, the quota closed second week of August for June, July, August, and then reopened September 1st. It was open for about 15 days and then closed. And then the October quota was open for six days. The population of bluefin tuna has not only recovered from what you know the managers wanted to see recover, but it's actually more fish around than I remember back in the 80s. So it's it, there's a lot of bluefin tuna around. That's great to hear that they're making a comeback. It sounds like you guys caught up the quota pretty quick. I know my dad is a commercial fisherman um, for multi-generations in my family. Everybody's fished and commercial fish. So he's on quotas too with certain things. And he's always saying like, we got to get them quick before the quota's caught up. Yeah, the the big problem. So the, yeah, it's fully recovered. Actually, it's very, very encouraging because there's tuna now on all tuna bottom from New York all the way to Canada. And um, we went through some pretty lean times back in the early 2000s. A lot of measures have taken for conservation. Uh, the fishermen participated. Um, I actually work with Marine Fisheries and NOAA on several groups managing the bluefin, as well as a recently formed organization for which I'm on the executive board called the Bluefin Collaborative. We're going to look at population assessment from a genetics perspective versus an you know, a sampling perspective. So, um, it's, it's in a lot of science is going into the bluefin now. And unfortunately, with so many bluefin getting caught, it's, it's viability as a commercial species is starting to go down a bit. 
because it's just a lot of fish available. That makes sense. So when you're looking at the genetics of them, how is that different from the other way that you guys have been researching? Well, the so from a get into the bluefin tuna has for as they've been studying them, been divided into two distinct stock, stocks, the Western Atlantic and the Eastern Atlantic. So the Western Atlantic would be the United States down to Mexico. The Eastern Atlantic would be Europe, Mediterranean. And the belief was that the two species, the two different groups did not mix or mixed minimally, or the Eastern stock supplied most of the Western fish that were caught. To prove that, you need to do it genetically. I mean, there are some morphological differences between the two species, but they're very hard to determine unless you know what you're looking for. Um, but genetically, there are some markers that you can say, yes, this is definitely from Eastern um, origin or Western origin. The <clears throat> um, so the what we're going, what we're doing now is we're taking tissue samples, fin clips, and we're creating a database of fish captured from you know recreational size fish all the way up to giants and start looking at them from a purely genetic standpoint where did this fish come from so as a marine biologist i studied bluefin through my undergrad and undergrad school um i fervently disagree with most of the science i've been out there for so long looking at these animals um that you're talking about an animal has to swim to breathe it's called ramjet ventilation so a giant bluefin has to swim roughly two body lengths per second to breathe. Well, you have a 10-foot bluefin, 120-inch bluefin. <clears throat> it's swimming, you know, uh, 20 feet per second. You do the math, that animal can swim just to breathe 100 miles pretty quickly. So swimming across the Atlantic for doing it is very easy. I mean, I've chased schools. Um, they're on the surface swimming, and they're swimming at six, seven, eight knots. So if they maintain that straight direction at that speed, eight times 24, oh, it's 190, 192, I believe. Yes, 192 miles in a day. So swimming across the Atlantic for them is a 15 to 20 day ordeal. It's not, it's not a huge thing to cons go back and forth across the Atlantic for a bluefin. So I've kind of, I've been very vocal that the, the two-stock theory is, is riddled with problems. And then on top of that, now we've discovered uh, larval fish <clears throat> in plankton toes, both off of the Slope Sea off the Carolinas, but also all the way up to Canada, which indicates that they're not only breeding in the Gulf of Mexico and the Mediterranean, but also now in the warm waters of the Gulf Stream just off our coast. Which throws a complete monkey wrench into the modeling because you, you're modeling a species, you got to understand where they spawn. If you don't understand where they spawn, you can't model a species. But nonetheless, you know, the, uh, they are, the, the scientists continue to argue there's only two spots in the, in the world that these animals spawn, which is, in my opinion, completely irresponsible um, for the management. Well, that's a lot of really great information and a lot to take in. And you've been doing it for so long that it's second nature for you. For me hearing stuff like that for the first time, my mind is boggled because like you said, how they, for, I didn't even realize how far they have to swim just to stay alive every day. And then you look at, they're trying to say like, no, this is, there's this species and this species and they're swimming all over the place just 
to be able to stay alive. Um, something I always say is you get people who, and this is not a knock on anybody that runs these kind of um, informationals, but when you're out there looking at it firsthand year after year, you see a different side of it than they get to see. So they're strictly the scientific side, but you're seeing the real life version of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my relationship with members of marine fisheries, both the Southeast Fisheries Science Center and the Northeast Fisheries Science Center is, is good. I mean, I used to notify Northeast Fisheries Science Center when we started to see the big influx of bluefin tuna coming migrating westward because we literally would see them where we were fishing the airplane I used as a spotter airplane. He would, he would see 50, 60, 70 bunches of fish all headed our way and say, here they come. And it's, that's the way they migrate. They they come pouring in right around the 1st of July and they start feeding and they become very accessible to the rod and reel fishery. And there's a lot of guys fishing the rod and reel fishery, a lot of center consoles, um, a lot of boats have gone fishing. The, the famous show out of Gloucester has really brought a lot of interest into the fishery to its own demise, in my opinion. Um, I know a lot of the captains on the show, I'm happy for them, but the combination of some NGO groups saying bluefin is threatened. Baccio uh, continues to publish the false narrative that the bluefin is endangered or threatened on it on the show, um, which is completely false. Um, and so the public perception of bluefin is we don't eat them because we think they're endangered. Well, that's not the truth. So we basically have a very limited market for these when we could have a huge market because it's such a good fish and there's a lot of and everybody loves eating them for sushi and your better steaks i know i've tried a small piece of bluefin before and it was night and day to yellowfin and yellowfin is delicious so it's just such a better quality of meat and if there's opportunity to feed the the world a little bit more then hopefully that's available one day so if we can you know, develop a domestic market. The export market doesn't really exist anymore for bluefin out of Boston. Not like it did back in the late 80s, early 90s, when we were shipping fish to Japan. Um, Japan has their own fish. Again, the um, Pacific bluefin has rec is recovering from overfishing as well. And so there's a domestic stock available for the Japanese. There's also a lot of fish farming going on. When I say fish farming, I quote unquote, it's basically wild capture, the uh, Panama, feed them, and it's, it's an on-demand product. So if I'm a sushi restaurant and I need a 200-pound bluefin, I just text one of the farms, email a farm, and they will get me a 200-pound bluefin of perfect quality. So off of that subject just a little bit, what have you been up to fishing-wise in Massachusetts? How's that been? Fishing's been great. I mean, I start every season ground fishing, do a lot of family charters for sea bass and scop and other ground fish right out front of my harbor. Been a lot of fun. And so I usually run those trips in the month of May. And I start commercial tuna fishing in June. Um, and I run commercial till the end of June. I go back chartering from July 1st through the end of the season. So, um, you know, usually we're targeting striped bass or tunas. We also target codfish when they're available. The season opens on uh, September 1st. And fluke, very popular fish, um, falls albacore. So we, whatever people want to catch, go after. 
We had a good, real good season this year. A lot of yellowfin around, a lot of bluefin. So it was, it was a, a great season. And every year it seems to keep getting better and better. That's really good to hear. I know you went on a recent charter with Team Salt Life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we took uh, Cynthia C2 with a big boat. Um, and we were going after giant bluefin tuna. And um, we started the morning fishing for our bait, which were... 12 to 15 pound bluefish and so when you're catching big bait you usually try to catch big fish tuna love to eat bluefish so we put uh i think a half a dozen or so fish on the boat that morning and went out and we were fishing um you know the baits on what we call balloons and we also had one on a kite up near the surface didn't get a bite that day but um it was a, it was a nice day and the uh, disappointing the fish didn't cooperate. How long was your charter? I think we fished for about nine hours. I think the wind came up a little bit um, late in the afternoon, so um, we packed it up and headed That's in. That's a long day of fishing. How far offshore were you guys? We weren't that far. We were only about nine miles out of port. Um, you know, bluefin, I've caught bluefin literally in 30 feet of water off the beach. So, you know, people think of bluefin as a an offshore species. Well, Reality is they are they're opportunistic to feed. So if the feed is in shoal water, they're bluefin are in shoal water. I've caught them in eight hundred feet of water, thousand feet of water. Wow, that's insane. So they just follow the bait and they don't really pay attention to the depths that much. No, they're not too worried about them. And they were in chasing pogies in eight feet of water. You know, oh my goodness. Um, also called bunker. Yeah, they were in eight feet of water dodging the rocks day just off of Plymouth, which is uh, just north of Sandwich. That's insane. It was kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that was a sight to see. It was. It was quite the thing. I understand there's an interesting backstory to your day on the charter. Something about you helping somebody recover their bluefin catch? Oh, yeah. So we were on our way in, and I noticed that there was a gentleman on a center console, and I'd seen this boat before, and he was fighting a fish. So... I was going to lend a hand. So I pulled up next to him and I said, do you want me to drop somebody off? And he goes, no, I kind of want to get this done myself. Okay. So I pulled away and I'm watching him try to fight the fish. Now, mind you, fighting a fish with one person on a center console is a tough deal. Fighting fighting alone is is a very, because part of fighting a bluefin is you got to be able to run the boat because bluefin are faster than you. They're faster than the boat. So you always got to keep fish kind of away from the propellers, away from getting underneath the boat. So I swung by again after I watched him try to, for about five minutes. And I said, are you sure? And he said, I'll take. So we I dropped the cameraman, Matt Russell, off. And 10 minutes later, they had a, a harpoon into it and tied off. Um, you know, it's just something you do. You know, we didn't, we had the time. I wasn't worried about stopping and giving him a hand. Uh, but he got the fish and he was happy about it. So kind of made his day as well. And we got some great video. That's awesome. That was really nice of you guys to help him out, especially after the first time saying, oh no, you know, I got it. I want to do this on my own kind of thing. But deep down in the back of your mind, you're knowing this is going to be a lot harder for him than he thinks. Um, like you were saying. Yeah. The odds of him getting the fish were increased dramatically once with the second person. Because one person can run the boat and he fought the do you know how long he had been fighting it before you guys pulled up? 
I don't. I don't. I just, we were steaming in and I noticed the rod bent over and I pulled up. That's when I pulled up next to him. And I'd seen him, he was uh, fishing in Buzzards Bay and stuff. So I knew the boat and I uh, offered help. Good. And it, did, did he have his own harpoon or did you guys have to bring a harpoon of your own on board? No, nope, he had his own harpoon. He was all set. He was properly rigged. How big was the tuna? It was a big one, over 100. Oh, my goodness. And what is that, like, weight-wise? Probably dress, mid-sixes, 650. Oh, my goodness. 600 to 650. Was he on a big center console? He looked like 26, 27 feet. Wow. So that seems like a huge tuna for that size boat, especially with one person. Yeah, with one person, it would be tough to get him in. Um, it's doable. You know, I've done it in my 28 whitewater. Um, it's a challenge, but you can get him in. So boats down here, uh, center consoles don't necessarily have tuna doors unless they're real big or it's a specific um, modification. So for you, for that boat, was, did he have the tuna door? Or how would he have gotten it in by himself? No, you the, the usually the way it's done is you put a block and tackle to the T-top. You put a uh, hook through the jaw, the bottom jaw of the tuna. You get his head up as high as the rail or higher. And then it's easy to lift the tail over the gunnel, drop it in the boat, and just drop the head in the boat. Okay, I see. It's not easy, but it's that's the way so you do it. So you got to get a little bit of leverage from the T-top in order to swing him in, basically. Yeah, you got to have a strong T-top to do that. Yeah, definitely. hopefully uh, no cracked T-tops. A lot of people actually um, do some upgrades to their T-top to fish for tuna, so the consoles. Okay, that, so they just add a little bit more of a layer of fiberglass or something to keep it in yeah, place? Yeah, they, they up to just add bracing and extra strength. You know, my T-top, fortunately, was designed for me to actually sit up there because I've got an upper station. So uh, lifting a fish aboard as a menoprol. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like an eventful day for that guy and for you guys getting to be a part of it. What was your favorite part of the charter? I always like grilling while fishing. I bring a grill, a whole grill and having hot lunch because when we are pooning, we don't get you know, the hot lunch option because uh, I'm always in the tower the entire day. So I just run down get a drink, take a bite of a sandwich and go. But um, with rod and reeling, it's it's the anticipation the entire day because you know, you you just don't know. I mean, a fish sees the bait, eats the bait, next thing you know, it goes from pretty boring watching balloons in the water to complete chaos. I can imagine. What's the temperature like um, that time of year that you guys were on the charter? Oh, it was, it was still warm. The water was still just around 70 degrees, 68 degrees. The day was started off beautiful. Um, Know, mid 70s so it was uh we never had really a weather issue the afternoon southwest came up which it always does and it just got it got bumpy it wasn't rough it was just uncomfortable grilling on the boat always makes the day a little better especially if the fishing's slow bust out some food and everybody's happy and ready for round two so do you have any other stories or highlights from uh stories in the past that have happened that you'd like to share with us i mean i've been doing this a long time i've I got a lot of stories, um, but I mean, every, every year has a story. That's for sure. The, the harpooning, you know, you can, there's a bunch of videos, um, on the website, as well as the Instagram page. It's people don't understand harpooning and it's, that's when I explain it to them, it's, it, they, it's hard for them to fathom until they see it. Um, you know, the, Rod Reel is still sophisticated when it comes to doing it the right way, but you know when you're harpooning, you you learn this, you learn the behaviors of the, of the tunas, and you're really good at 
instinctively picking up changes in their behavior as they get closer. Because you know the these animals are fast. Within a second, they're fifty feet away. It's that's literally how fast they can go. So um, I get a lot more questions about the harpooning than the rod and reeling. But you know, for those who really want to have a lot of fun, run and gun surface feeds for the four, you know for the forty-five to sixty-inch bluefin is a blast. I mean, you got fish just raging on the surface. You're throwing spinning rods, um, you know, spinning gear at these fish, and um, when it accommodates, they are you know they, you can do a half a dozen fish a day. And usually people are pretty tired when you do a day like that. I can imagine. So when you're running gunning, what kind of bait are you tossing at them? Oh, it's it's kind of a match the hatch situation. Um, we I do a lot with bogey, um, bogey lures. Uh, also, the siren lures work really well. Uh, and you're just you, you got to keep changing it out until you figure what they want to eat. Sometimes you get it right off the get you know right off the bat. You're getting tight. Other times, you know, it's you've thrown half the tackle box at them before they finally will take a bite. It's it's just um, where they are. I mean, you're looking at them and you're so frustrated. I mean, the other day we were on a trip and there was probably five thousand bluefin under the boat in a school. Could literally see them in the water. We were dropping jigs. We were dropping. We were throwing plugs because some were on the surface. We could not get a fish to eat. And uh, it's just that's the kind of the lore of the fish too is when they don't want to eat they're not going to eat literally throw everything at them they're not going to eat sometimes they'll eat the propellers off the boat but other times they just won't eat oh man i can't imagine the hype of seeing that many tuna under the boat i bet you guys were going nuts it was uh it was pretty amazing the uh machine had three different bunches at the same time and we had one on the surface as well it's just but we could not get any one of those to eat we finally got one to eat later but at that particular time they just what would you say the depth of the ones that weren't on the surface was? They were only down about, I was marking them at 30 feet. 30 feet down to about 110 feet. So that's how big that school, 80 feet deep and probably 150, 200 feet wide. Wow, that sounds like the craziest sight to see, just a wall of tuna. And we're seeing a lot. We're seeing a lot of that this summer. Big, giant schools of fish rolling along. So this, r- rolling it back to when you were talking about how healthy the population is, that sounds like a great sign to see that many fish in one spot. Well, we've been seeing, so those fish were 45 to 55 inches. And um, we've been seeing a continual year class of fish in that range over the last five years, which indicates that we have successive good year classes coming up. Um, a lot of the management studies have are based on a two, the 2003 year class, which was tremendous. But now you, we're starting to work uh, year classes from 2015, uh, 2017, 2018. It's, we're starting to see year classes that were really successful um, coming into the fishery, and hence the reason why we close the quota so fast. That's great to hear that they're doing so well and out there prospering every year, getting a little bit better. Do you have any upcoming fishing trips? Uh, I've got... Three I'm trying to get done this year. The weather has not cooperated um, in October. Yesterday and today were beautiful, except I couldn't get them to go. Uh, they just didn't have the opportunity to go. So um, it's been it's been trying with the weather this year. It's been a lot of breeze. Uh, and, you know, when you're sight fishing and you're running around, trying to run around at 30, 35 miles an hour, you know, it doesn't need to get too, too rough before... 
it's not a fun day for the trip or for the cap. And, you know, I'd prefer to take people out fishing on a day when A, they're going to be comfortable and B, I can see the fish and get them on the fish. Um, it's, you know, so that sometimes the trips are disappointed when I send them a text at 3.30 in the morning and say, oh, we're not going to go. They're like, well, it doesn't seem that windy. Well, okay. I've been doing this a long time. Believe me, you're not going to like life when we get out. Once you get out beside beyond the protected harbors, obviously the conditions get worse. So, um, you know, most people understand, but the, uh, you know, some people do are like, we still, they still want to go. And then I take them and you're like, oh, yes, it was, it's rough. I'm like, we can go late. We can go another day. And they're like, good. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't know how, just how windy it can be. And it does pick up um, a lot of the times as the day goes on too. That's true. It's just the, if the wind blows through the night, you're already starting the disadvantage because again, you want to be able to see the splashes of the fish feeding because that's, it's a very visual fishery when you're trying to catch them on the surface. If we were fishing bait amongst the whales, dolphin, it's a different story. You just find the whales and the dolphin, they're pretty visible all the time because they have to breathe. And um, so you just find those and you put the baits in the water and you kind of wait till the fish come to you. But when you're you're actively pursuing fish, you know, and that plays same as harpooning. Harpooning is a very weather condition specific fishery. It needs to be nice. And when I say nice, less than two feet with sunlight preferred. Um, so because the, these fish are up running at or near the surface when we're looking for uh, for the harpoon. So it's, it's the same concept when you're actively chasing them with a spin gear. Okay, so conditions really matter in both of those scenarios. Correct. Gotcha. Well, can you shout out your social medias for us so we can follow along and get a more visual view of everything you've explained to us? Sure. I maintain a website. It's fvcynthiac.com. I'm on Instagram at fvcynthiac and also on Facebook at fvcynthiac. It's all fvcynthiac. But I am actually rebranding at this point we're actually wearing a salt life see it the salt life captain shirts and my wife who is a graphic designer you see the logo but um she designed this logo and so as i transition away from a commercial fishing base to a charter fishing base um we're going to rebrand over this winter as unchartered sport fishing so the uh the concept is I will still partially fish probably one month a year with the harpoon because I can't give that up. Um, it's just, it's in me. It's, it's been my life for so long that it's, it's very hard to walk away from. But I'm really enjoying the chartering, um, especially the, the bluefin chartering on the smaller boat and the family charters I do in the spring. Those are, those are actually the best. I love taking kids fishing. I mean, they, you take a 15-year-old fishing and they forget they have a fall for three or four hours. It's crazy. You know, especially when you're catching fish one after the other. We target species that will catch three, four hundred in a day. We'll get our limit of you know, four or five per person. But, you know, the rod is bending the entire day. I bet that's such an experience for them. And like you said, getting the kids away from the phone is such a hard thing to do these days. So if they can be passionate about fishing and being outdoors and living their life, that's really where it's at. That's, you know, that's the key too, is the people that 
spend time outdoors and participate in the outdoors, support the outdoors. They're, they're the true conservationists. So if you lose, if you start losing people fishing and other outdoor activities, they're not going to support conservation efforts. And, you know, we all know tax dollars go towards you know, conservation and other good causes. And they're not participating, then there's no money there. So it ultimately would go away. And that, that's a concern for me. So that's why I actually donate a, a trip a year to Ducks Unlimited chapter, local chapter. And it, the requirement is there has to be four kids on the boat on that day of the trip. In two adults, four kids. And uh, usually at the end of the day, end of the trip, the kids will say to me, that was a lot of fun. And because fishing is fun. Yes, it is. And that's a good concern to have. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's something that a lot of people don't think about is that, like you were saying, the people who are participating in the outdoors, in fishing, in these activities are the ones supporting it. And if there's a generation that's not so involved, what will that look like in 50 years? There'll be no one to to argue, you know, with the policymakers and the decision makers and try to educate them on what's really going on. Because, you know, my experience with a lot of your fishery science is they don't actually know where the fish are. They're just doing math. And, you know, until you understand a species, and I did a lot of work with the bluefin and left more confused about bluefin than when I started. And then just about 40 years later, I think I understand these animals pretty well. And, uh, you know, I still will get into arguments with people who think I'm wrong. And they can't prove me wrong. They read somebody else's research and take that as gospel. We got to stop doing that. We got to start looking at the possibilities of, well, if the fishermen are seeing this, whether it be recreation or commercial, maybe my numbers are wrong. The problem is arrogance in fishery science is levels pretty high, but there's some really good people coming into the fishery science industry now. And I've talked to a few of them and I'm actually feeling better about the future of not only my fishery, the bluefin, uh, but also some of the uh, more local fisheries that are currently being completely mismanaged in my opinion. That's a good thing to hear that it's, there's people coming in that are going to help support what your ideologies of it are and your what you know to be true from being at first hand. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. There's so much great information that you gave and so many different insights and points of view. And we really appreciate you taking your time to be on the Above and Below podcast. Anytime. And if you come up to New England, you want to go fishing for pretty much any species. Um, my information's on the website as well as Instagram and Facebook pages. So I will be booking for 2024, starting probably another month. To our listeners, you heard it from him. Check out his website, check out his social medias, and get in touch if you want to go on a charter. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in to Above and Below a Salt Life podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Real Salt Life. If you've enjoyed this episode, rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast to help spread the word. And remember, stay salty.